The talk tonight is called No Part Left Out. It's about um, relief and mystery and unexpected joy. In Vipassana meditation, we're taking uh, two kinds of attention, which seems like a paradox, movement and stillness. And when they come together, we're able to flow with the stream of how life is. We're able to flow with the truth uh, as best we can. One of the things we can learn in this practice is that the truth is, is always there. It always was there and always will be here. The unconditioned was always there through lifetimes is here right now in this moment and will always be here. It permeates everything. It permeates every thought, every emotion. permeates the inner child. It permeates a breath. It's like this world of relative level of uh, experience, an absolute level. They're here all the time. So no part left out. (laughs) That's what this title of the talk is about. And when we can understand this, uh, even when we get these glimpses of this truth, there's a great relief, and it will ultimately feel like a mystery, and there will be unexpected joy when we touch into that. When I first uh, came to this meditation practice, I wasn't really um, up for the movement of life. I really just wanted everything to stop. But I didn't know this when I came to meditate at my first retreat. Um, I didn't really know what I was getting myself into at all. Uh, And I um, had just quit a job, and I went to a Bob Dylan concert on my way to this, whatever it was. Uh, And I didn't know, I mean, I thought we were going to maybe meditate an hour a day. So I, I brought a whole car full of, you know, books and watercolors, and, you know, I was up for this great vacation. Uh, and this was the first three-month retreat that was taught in the United States up in Maine. Um, <laughs> and when I saw the schedule, you know, it was just unthinkable. You know, really, I mean, you, <laughs> you have no idea what I was expecting. <laughs> And I saw the schedule, you know, sit, walk, sit, walk, sit, walk, sit, walk, sit, walk, Uh, you know. And there was no office at this place. There was no welcoming committee. There was no registration. Uh, So I just walked in, and people were coming out of the hall. No one was looking at me. Everybody was walking slow. You know, they all looked like zombies, and it was horrifying. (laughs) And then when I saw, you know, sit, walk, sit, walk, sit, walk, sit, walk, sit, walk, sit, walk, talk, it was the only reason I stayed. Because I thought that meant we could talk. <laughs> and whenever, you know, at 7.30 came and we, you know, I was sitting there thinking, oh boy, finally we can talk. And this person gets up and starts talking, Joseph. I was so angry. <laughs> I was just like... I felt duped, you know, just totally betrayed and duped. Um, <laughs> everything in me, you know, there was no spaciousness. There was no what we would call inner spaciousness. And whatever was appearing in my life, I identified with as me or I or mine. And I mentioned before, if I went out in nature enough, and I learned to do this really young, I feel very lucky. Whenever I would go out into nature long enough, I would find the stillness and I would be able to have the courage to go back to my life and start again. But as my life went on, I, would start, I started to notice that um, pain of not being free. I would get still, I'd be okay, and then I'd come back into the human world and there'd be all this aversion and attachment and I wouldn't know what to do. Plus, I couldn't handle anybody else's never mind my own. So when I started sitting, actually the concentration was essential. 
I couldn't just let my attention flow with how life was. I had no skill. But to feel like I could stop, that was everything. So that's stillness. Concentration is our ability to bring our attention somewhere and stay there, like with the breath or sound. For me, I didn't even know I wasn't following the instructions. I was I I used sound as my anchor for years. I didn't know. <laughs> I didn't really hear them talking about the breath, <laughs> luckily. Um, and I ha- I started to learn about interconnectedness, not being separate through paying attention to sound. And you can do that with breath, body sensations. So a lot of the beginning of practice is just learning how to come to stillness. We're not really up for moment-to-moment change initially. But we'll flirt with it. It's like we'll get still enough and then there'll be like a kind of opening. Oh, maybe I can pay attention to breath, body sensation, thought, this flow of change at the six sense doors. And then we'll kind of come back to that stillness. The stillness is a kind of rest, as I've said the other talk, a rest, a strengthening that gives us the courage to open to change again. So when we are just concentrated, for example, with the breath, the attention gets absorbed into it. The attention connects with it, sustained it, sustains with it, but we just drop into it. We don't look at it and understand it as changing or as insubstantial or as uncertain. We're just synchronizing our attention with something. We learn how to have an attention that is connected. You see, you can receive it. You receive the breath, but you don't necessarily know it or understand it. So the fixed concentration is that ability say with a loving-kindness practice or sometimes with a breath or a sound where you just synchronize your attention with what's happening, that takes a lot of skill. And it leads to a certain kind of happiness. It leads to a feeling of being interconnected or union with what's happening. So there's a loss of a separate self. You have a sense of relief from that loss of separate self, through feeling so connected. But we're not noticing the staccato of change there. We're just noticing that feeling of stillness, union. So in that way, um, we notice that love tells me I'm everything. Love tells me I'm everything. We love that kind of insight. You know, we we love it. We, We thrive on it. And it's not, it's not hard to feel joyful when we have that kind of feeling of interconnectedness. Then we also ask you in this practice that when you feel like the attention is still enough from being with the breath in this way or being with the body or sound, when we come to that stillness, then we ask you to notice change. So the breath doesn't always necessarily seem like an anchor at that point because it's <laughs> you'll start to notice it changing and not being so um, reliable or substantial. So that we have insight into wisdom. Wisdom tells me I'm nothing. When you look at something closely, when we're asking you to do the mindfulness, when you notice the sound closely or you notice the breath closely, or if you notice anything closely, what do you notice? There's not much there. You get closer and closer to it. And this is where we start getting disenchanted. You know, we start letting go from the place of nothing is worth holding on to because there's nothing there to hold on to. And it's easy. It's a relief. Again, there's a relief. There's ultimately a mystery to this. And there's also an unexpected joy. But the joy in this practice of Vipassana is coming from um, overcoming the pleasure-pain syndrome. It's coming from overcoming this sense of needing to make permanent 
what isn't permanent. So this, this, this paradox of stillness and movement that comes together in the Vipassana practice, but there's also this paradox of these totally opposite kinds of insight. Love and wisdom. And they're both really important. The love part holds us. It's like a, it's the uh, container for the emptiness. It's such a paradox to know that we glue ourselves together with the loving kindness and then we let ourselves fall apart <laughs> through the, the mindfulness practice. I mean, that, you know, that's kind of hard. That's a kind of paradox, yeah? But that's what we're doing. We're, we're touching into the truth, the mystery of that in both ways. Sri Nazarga Maharaj, to me, expressed this the most beautifully. He said, love tells me I'm everything. Wisdom tells me I'm nothing. And between the two, my life flows. And can we hold that? And that's a mature spiritual being. It's a mature spiritual being that can hold that practice because it is the truth. If we look more closely at what I just described, if we look very carefully at a sound or a sight of the, or a smell, if you just take hearing consciousness, uh, technically there's three things that can come together with hearing consciousness, and it's called striker, receptor, and ignition. A match, lights. It's, the light is one moment of consciousness. Striker is the sound. Receptor is the ear door. Ignition is knowing that hearing's happening. So what we're asking you to do is explore this. Where is the solid, separate self there? Actually, it's taking those three things for a moment of consciousness to happen. And then that's happening. Staccato, meaning that light, of the match takes birth, disappears, and then there's thinking consciousness, and then there's, there's the mind door or the heart center. That's the receptor. The thought is the striker, and thinking consciousness happens. And then we can be mindful of that. And that's happening over and over and over and over and over and over. Sometimes we don't tend to like that kind of insight. Sometimes we have aversion to change, and we want to go back to that feeling of union and uh, security of this, the pure concentration. That's okay. You know, sometimes we need that sense of just the container, the stillness, without the movement. That's the art of meditation, to know the skillful means of shifting back to the love the lightness, the union with all things, the truth of interconnectedness. But that's not the end, because that's not the only truth. So we can idealize interconnectedness, and we can idealize detachment. And we tend to be one way or the other. You know, some people tend to feel more strong. They come into this lifetime with an inclination toward detachment, And they need to strengthen that, but they also need, you know, they need to also develop the heart of connectedness. And those that are more heartful and more connected, they can idealize that and not know how to detach and to go with change. And so we all are here needing to develop both, learning what our strengths are, learning where we're a little off, (laughs) and developing it. No part left out. Remember, that's what the talk is about. No part left out. You can't leave out love or wisdom if you're talking about the truth. If you've uh, come to practice for the first time, you'll feel like you're learning how to come to stillness probably a lot through body, through sound, through breath. 
And coming to stillness through thought might seem kind of far away, but maybe not, or through emotion. I know when I, when I described my first retreat, and they started talking about mindfulness of thought, again, there was no inner spaciousness. And so literally, if I noticed the thought, I would use a no- the noting as a baseball bat. It would literally be like, oh, judging, wham! You know, I had to just, I had to do it. You know it when we do it. It's like you have to push the thought out because it's just coming in and overwhelming you. You have to go, wham, planning, you know, wham, (laughs) thinking. You know, you just don't stand a chance if you don't just kind of bludgeon these thoughts, you know, out of your head and just stand a chance to be with one breath. In my daily practice, it would take 45 minutes for me to just notice one breath. And it takes great patience to start there and, and just sit there for 45 minutes when you could be swimming or, you know, whatever. You know, and uh, <laughs> at the end of the sitting, you get this little glimpse of being with a breath. I remember that. It takes a great commitment to, and, and kind of a suspension of disbelief uh, to... Keep going through those times when you don't have the inner space and you don't really have enough practice yet to get what we're doing. To the point where my last self-retreat I just did March and April, there was no resistance to thought whatsoever. I could think every thought. I didn't, I didn't, it just, just comes through because I'm not identified with them. I mean, once in a while there might be some identification, but it's no problem. Just recover, notice that. It's like you get this ability to come to stillness and not be bothered by anything. That's freedom. No need to get rid of thought. That's transparency. No need to resist, because one sees it so clearly. That's that sense of the mind being like the vast sky, and the thoughts literally are like clouds coming and going. Freedom isn't thinking that all thoughts are bad. Some thoughts are really helpful. The thoughts I'm using right now are really helpful. Some thinking and reflecting are our best friends. When the bell rings for lunch, for example, and you have the thought, I'm going to go to lunch. Now, you wouldn't push that thought away, probably, yeah? You know, that would be unwise. So we're not saying that all thought is a a problem. We're saying that it's helpful to get the spaciousness to see that we have the freedom whether to believe them or not. And that takes training. It takes a lot of training. It's the truth. And it takes a lot of patience. But I can say, I can look back and see that place where there was no inner spaciousness to a place where there's a tremendous inner spaciousness, and I still have a lot of work to do. And it's, it's, there's that great relief and mystery and unexpected joy to really commit to this and know that if there was any other way to do it, I would tell you. <laughs> and then, so we, come to, we learn to come to t- stillness through what's more easy, like physical sensations, breath, body sensation, sound for some of us. But then you learn to come to stillness through thought, and then emotion. You can come to stillness through despair through your inner child, through loneliness, through happiness, through over-exuberance. You don't have to think that you have to put aside some part of you to be free. You don't have to put some part aside of you for the unconditioned to appear, because it's always there. It's all it is, is learning the skill to have whatever appear be acceptable, and you're not identified with it. It's not personal. And as Steve is bringing up a lot, which is really helpful, it's that sense of knowing itself. 
that spaciousness of knowing and coming to stillness through that, it's really important for us to know that we don't have to wait ten years of practice to be aware of the mind. We need to be able to know we can do that any time we can. Sri Nazargadatta Maharaj said, All realization is only sharing. You enter a wider consciousness and share in it. Unwillingness to enter and to share is the only hindrance. You know, that's amazing to realize when we say the mind or the heart, we're including everybody in this room, these walls, and the whole universe. That's when stillness and movement come together. Everything is there, and nothing is there. It's that great paradox. And of course, when we hear that, if we try to understand it here, right? Everything goes, <laughs> I can't do that now. You know, <laughs> what's she talking about? You know, but if we let it go in here, into the heart, we know it's true. And we can receive it because we're not trying to figure it out in the head. When Sri Nazargadatta talks about the unwillingness to share in this wider consciousness or realization, um, this unwillingness um, is something that over time you can become interested in. And believe it or not, you can come to stillness through resistance. You can come to every truth through being able to be with the resistance. It's just another experience. So the key to ease in practice is so much learning how to be okay with not wanting to be here, not wanting to be with what's happening. It's okay. You don't have to get rid of that to be free. If one feels lost, it's only because we say, I feel lost, and we believe it, that it's a problem. If we feel, I don't want to be here, I don't want to be with this, you know, it's not a problem. All you have to do is step back and let that thought come and go, and you don't have to believe it. And I know for some of you that might seem a little far away, but it isn't. All it takes is a moment where you see clearly that that's just a thought, like the thought, this rug is red. Michelle has pink hair. (laughs) You know, whatever it is. These are just thoughts, you know, and some of them you can believe, relatively speaking, (laughs) and some of them you don't. And you can see how we can suffer so much over a few words. I did a a three-month retreat some years ago where I just, I, I really knew I had to come on retreat but I had to quit a job, and I had no money. And I was so afraid of coming out of that retreat with nothing. But I knew I had to do it. And during that retreat, I would be out there in the parking lot down there doing walking meditation, and sometimes this thought would come, I have no money. And it would just grip me. The whole, my whole body would just, just get <laughs> like this massive coagulated <laughs> fear. And it was just incredible. And I watched that day after day after day, that when I was tired and more vulnerable, that thought would come and it would be like, I have no money. And it would be like, oh, no. You know, and I started to get so afraid of that phrase. You know, I have no money. Ah! <laughs> you know, like not fear attack number ten million three hundred fifty thousand and twenty-two. You know, and it was just incredible to watch myself bite for it and bite for it and bite for it and bite for it, and it started lightening up and lightening up and lightening up until it just didn't get me anymore. You know, it just became so boring. You know, I mean, you know the things that really, you know, you get so into. And then after, you know, (laughs) at least that was just one retreat. There are some that you just wish would become boring. And it takes, you know, 30 years later, you're still 
you know, not bored enough with that pattern, you know. And some things, like that one, it took about six weeks to really start loosening up. This is um, a poem by Pablo Neruda to Sadness. Sadness, I need your black wing. For a moment, for a short lifetime, take the light from me and let me feel myself lost and miserable, trembling among the threads of twilight, receiving into my soul the trembling hands of the rain. Sadness, I need you. How wonderful to have that relationship to the experience of sadness. To say, take the light from me and let, my, let me feel myself lost and miserable. You know, we can be so afraid of some of these experiences and when we finally stop resisting it and let ourselves just be there, we see that it's okay. And we learn, again, some skill with being with that experience. Skillful means is learning in practice what is easier for us to learn to come to stillness with. For me, it was a great revelation when I realized it was sound. That took me some years of practice to realize that sound was easiest for me to come to stillness with. I kept thinking I was going to graduate to the breath and that something was wrong with me for needing to use sound as an anchor. It took a long time for me to accept that that wasn't what was happening for me and that sound was the anchor for me. Eventually, I learned how to use breath as an anchor But that was many years after working with sound. And for me, it's still a refuge. It's like if I feel ever like I'm, like if I overwork and I feel closed and I'm not open. Like today, I went up to um, this place where I can hear, I know where this wood thrush is, this bird that has this incredible sound. And I know if I just stand there and listen for a while, even if the mosquitoes come, (laughs) that I know that I'll just be able to open again. It's a very dependable refuge for me. You know, so we learn what is it that brings about that kind of opening for us. As I said this morning, my father didn't really learn about that until he got a cat at 75. It was the first time I ever saw him open. It was amazing. And there was that mixture in me of incredible jealousy and disappointment and loss and also happiness for him that he was finally able to find some refuge for his heart to open. And what you learn in this practice is then you start to find other things that help us open and other things that help us open so we don't have to depend on one thing. And eventually... No part left out. You learn how to come to stillness through many things. In fact, you can learn to become fully enlightened and come to stillness through any, anything possible in the human world. So it's possible to become totally accepting, totally relaxed. My mother... Um, played saxophone in the cellar when I was a kid um, a lot. She drank a lot, and she um, played the blues big time. And one of the uh, songs she played over and over was a song from Billie Holiday. And when I was a kid, the lines that stuck in my head were, um, everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. And that's so wise. We all want to go to heaven, but what price are we willing to pay for that? 
And that's that willingness to die. You know, Martin Luther King had an incredible way to express this. You know, he said that we all have the dignity to die for our freedom. You know, and he said that to people in the South, that really that was literal and encouraged them to be willing to die for their freedom. You know, and I have to ask us all in this room, you know, can we get that that's what we're doing here? You know, that's what you're doing here. Are you willing to die for your freedom? Meaning that aversion and attachment are these obstacles, but also doorways to truth, to freedom. And are we willing to go through what we go through day after day in retreat to get these glimpses of freedom and truth? Is it worth it to you? Well, hopefully we get that sense of knowing that this is hard, probably the hardest thing we can ever do, and yet it's the most liberating and very noble. So when we talk about death in that way, we're talking about the death of the separate self. And there's so many different ways on a retreat that we can explore that. And like I said, with sound, when you bring your attention to sound, explore how is it that you feel separate from that sound. With sight, right now, looking at us up here, sitting up here, if you look with your eye door, striker, (laughs) receptor, ignition, bring your attention to the eyes right now. And notice how the attention moves out and creates separation. Bring it back. Notice it move out. Bring it back. Bring your attention to the eyes and notice color and form. And see if you can notice how there's just the touching of the color and form right here in the eye. We think someone's out there, but actually (laughs) the perception's happening here. Again, I'm encouraging you to be interested. Explore how do we create separation through the eye door. Taste, you know, touch. It's, it's, it's just um, wonderful when we can do it. And when we're not interested, just be still for a while. Don't push the river. Let yourself rest. And feel, if you can, just to synchronize with life without having to explore it. It's really important. You might need to do that 95% of the day and explore for a few seconds. That might be enough. Patience. Sometimes I have this idea that God gave me a certain amount of impatience this lifetime and that I used it up already. (laughs) That I had a quota and that um, I I make uh, an excuse that I don't have any more, so, oh well. (laughs) So when I display impatience, I think, well, I used it up. I'll just have to wait till next lifetime for it. Um, But that's really just getting caught in impatience, yeah? So I wanted to tell a story that about my own impatience. And actually, I have come a long way. You know, so when I really look like I'm impatient is around the time when I have to pack up to go somewhere for a long time. So this last time uh, I was in Honolulu, I had been on the Big Island a lot, and everything was sort of um, untogether. There was a lot to do. And usually the day before I leave for two months, there's a long list of things to do. And I've been working with this pattern for years. You know, it's like I know at some point I'm really going to get caught in time and feel like I don't have enough time and feel like I really lose it. And over the years I've gotten better at this and better at this and better at this, but I know there's going to be one point where I'm going to lose it. Um, So this pattern has required a lot of patience for me because it's very humbling to be somewhere and be a meditation teacher and lose it. You know, it's humbling. So this time, 
I had a long list of things to do, and I had a dentist appointment and this and that, and I was cutting it way too short, and I went into the store, um, a grocery store. Um, it was a health food store, grocery store, and I had a big cart full of stuff, um, and there were long lines. And I timed this trip so that I, this is the time when I thought the grocery store would be empty, and it just happened to be extraordinarily, unusually, mysteriously busy and long lines. So that was a setup, right? So I, get, I start coming toward the lines, and this man was watching me, this really big guy, huge guy, and he had one little... It was so funny because he was huge, and he had this one little bottle of vitamins. <laughs> and he's kind of... You know, you can tell he's getting close to the lines like, oh, no, and I'm getting close with my little me with my big cart, right, of stuff, and I'm sort of there, and he looks at me, and I look at him, and he can tell I'm already close to losing it, right? And he, he looks at me, and he said, you look like I need to let you go in front of me. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, you know, I said, even though you only have this little bottle of vitamins, I have all this stuff, yeah, I do, I really do, I need to go in front of me. <laughs> And so then he said, I am going to be so nice to you today that I'm going to wait here and we're going to watch the lines and see which one's moving faster. And I'm like, great, okay. So we're standing there and he says, by the way, what's your name? Okay, Michelle, you know, we, you know so we're standing there and he's, we're looking and you know when somebody is behind the cash register and they pick up the phone and they're on the phone and he said, that's a bad sign. <laughs> he said, you better go in this line. And my intuition was to stay in the line, you know, to go in the other line. But I listened to him, and I went into the line, the other line, where she wasn't on the phone. Um, and my line was moving really slow, and his line was moving really fast. And I was standing there, um, <laughs> and I've been working with, in my own self, like, I tend to sort of just be nice and nice. That's my pattern. And sort of asserting myself in these situations is, is appearing. Disappearing is more my pattern. So I, I've been working with in times like this, seeing what would happen if I stretched. Um, so I went up to him with my cart and I said, you know, I used to be a nice person, but today I'm experiencing that I really need to cut. So I, I actually pushed my cart in front of him. <laughs> I said, you know, Thanks. <laughs> I thanked him with, I mean, he wasn't into giving me this space, but I took it, you know. So he's standing there, and he says to me, and everybody's listening at this point. People were watching, listening, and he said, Michelle, I teach anger management. <laughs> and he said, I think you need an anger management course. <laughs> and I was so stunned. It's like, well, this is what happens when you try to like assert yourself. No wonder I don't do this. You know, dis- you know, disappearing is so much easier. So I'm standing there stunned. And I, <laughs> I said, I said, well, how do, how do I qualify for anger management? And he said, well, you know, do you ever go out and hit trees when you're angry? <laughs> and I'm like, no. And he said, well, I think you need my anger management course. And I said, (laughs) then I started getting caught, right? So I'm sitting there and I said, well, I teach meditation. (laughs) (laughs) And you could hear a pin drop in the store. I mean, everyone's listening. (laughs) He's totally shocked and he starts getting angry, right? And (laughs) And so... I could tell he was about to give me a really good left punch. And so I said, I got it in before he could get back to me. I said, in fact, I'm meditating right now. (laughs) And he just couldn't believe it. You know, he was like, oh, my God. And I said, yeah, you know, I'm standing here, and I'm noticing the coldness on the cart, and I'm listening to your voice, and, you know, all you have to do is be in the present moment. It's a piece of cake. (laughs) So he said, that sounds much easier than what I teach. <laughs> I said, <laughs> he said, I want to mark it on what you do. <laughs> and it was, we were just going back and forth, and the whole place was laughing. 
You know, and it was such an incredible moment. Here we were all in this long line, and everybody was tense, and everybody just lightened up, you know, and it was great. It was just really good. But I left the store feeling like, oh, you know, here we go again. You know, impatience, and how do you work with it? And how can we be humble with where we get stuck, where we get caught? And when somebody tells you you need an anger management course, (laughs) when you don't think you do. (laughs) So once you've been practicing for a while, you can really divide life into two things, purity and purification. And when you're in retreat, you can really get a taste for this. So purity is when certain conditions come together And in a way, if you think of that as grace, as a mystery, you don't feel like you have to make it happen or produce it or contrive it. You know it's already happened for you. You get these glimpses where there's this incredible purity. And we love that. And we call that good practice. And that's not the whole goal of practice. The goal is also purification. It's getting to see our impatience. It's getting to see our irritation, our aversion, our fear, our, our, our wanting, our over-exuberance, our desire, all of that. It's getting to see it. And if you've practiced a long time, you're meant to see the deeper roots. So you might have see, you know, worked with a lot of stuff, but actually there are the deeper roots of aversion and attachment. And what's hard in practice is that you're, you're going along and you finally get this glimpse and it's, it, it might last a few moments, it might last minutes, it might last hours. And as the energy starts to go down, this is important, as the energy starts to go down, the equanimity will start to fade usually and the new layer of purification is lifting. So we usually don't have the energy to face the resistance to it. And often we get overcome by it, and we call that bad practice. And this doesn't have to be a big thing. It could be a little phrase, like, I have no money. It's something we're vulnerable to. But what that was for me was fear. You know, and there'll be something that will surface, and we'll fight it, and we'll want to get back. Uh, you know, it's a multiple hindrance attack, really, because we get sleepy, we probably, you know, we, we get aversive, we, we want the sitting back, and we get all caught up in a knot, and we think we're failing at the practice. And this is just purification. And you know you've been here long enough where you'll get that sense where you finally open to it, the energy comes back, there'll be these moments of purity again, And we think we have to hold on to those because we think that's it. And we forget again and again that that purification is just as important and a direct result of the purity. And this will happen in our daily life. This will happen on retreat. And if you can start relating to this as how it goes, we have much more equanimity or balance with when we see our stuff. It's part of the process. If we don't see where we're stuck, we'll never get free of it. It just takes a lot of patience. And this can take a lot of different forms. You know, the other night I was sitting here and I had a memory of um, being captain of the junior varsity girls basketball team when I was in high school. Um, And I just kind of let this memory start to surface because I I would just notice it and it would repeat and I would notice it and it would repeat. And then I started having these images of these girls that were on the team with me. And then all of a sudden I almost had a laughing fit in the hall. You know, and it was just welling up in me and I was like, whoa, you know, and it was coming down. And, and then I kept trying to think. It was so intense. It was so funny and so joyful. And I thought, just try to think of some dead butterflies or something. You know, <laughs> try to, I, you know, because I knew having a laughing fit isn't that helpful in the hall. You know, and it was so strong. Um, and it was just this wonderful memories of um, 
um, joy. And it, I was not um, really cut out for team sports, but my sister and my best friend were really great. They were just top. And my, my sister, this is sort of coming in the story, but my sister was actually captain of all three sports, field hockey, basketball, softball, all, all four years of high school. She was brilliant. She was just this incredible athlete. And I just tagged along. I just kind of tagged along. <laughs> I still wonder what I was doing. You know, I don't know what was motivating me, but I, my goal was to have fun. And their goal was to win. And there was just, there was no way that, there was such a big discrepancy between me and them. And, their, and basketball, like in the varsity, their, their scores were um, like 64 to 62 or, you know, 54 to 80 or something. And all four years I was captain of the JV team, right? My scores were like 6 to 4. I mean, it was incredible. I mean, <laughs> it was so much fun. But we never got baskets, you know. And um, in me- remembering this, I was just wondering, what's going on? I was just, you know, and actually the coach, my coach used to punish the varsity players. Uh, if she wanted to really punish someone, she'd have them come onto my team, you know, from varsity to junior varsity. And they would have so much fun, they wouldn't want to go back onto the team. And so those are the girls I was remembering. You know, they'd come down to, down to my level, and I, they, their, their, pra- their practice would totally fall apart. It's like they could get tons of baskets. They'd come on my team, and they couldn't get a basket. And I used to, like, I used to have all these games we'd play. Like, we'd throw the ball from one side to the other. And, like, the, I just totally got them out of, you know, trying to get a basket. <laughs> we were just having such a good time, you know, and a lot of these friends, you know, had hard lives, and, you know, I think they also will look back at, like, we would just have such a good time until the coach would get mad, and, um, you know, they were actually aspiring (laughs) to something besides fun, but I wasn't, Um, and as as these memories kept repeating, I got to that place of, oh, there was sadness there, because I actually felt like my sister and my friend and the coach and the school really didn't get the type I was. You know, they, they got that type, but the, the sort of fun joy was missing. You know, it wasn't like um, you got a letter <laughs> for having fun and not getting baskets. Um, and so once I just opened to that and accepted that, it stopped repeating. It's gone finished, you know. That's an example, a very light example, but that's partly what we're doing. That's purification. Now, if I tried to just keep coming back to the breath and forcing the breath, forcing the breath, forcing the breath, breath, what would have happened? There'd be no insight. There'd be no healing. You know, and so that's the dance that we have in this practice. But if I was getting caught in that, I would have gone to the breath if I felt like I couldn't let that process happen without the acceptance and the non-identification. It wouldn't have moved through. I would have been caught, not repressed. So that finding that ability, the skillful means to know when to anchor, when to let go, when to let things move, um, is really this great gift in art. And this is very humbling. You know, what worked... Like I said before, what worked a sitting ago won't work in the moment because each moment is new. This is why this practice takes great courage. The conditions are changing, the energy, the concentration, the mindfulness. It all comes and goes by itself. Albert Einstein said, the most beautiful thing we can experience is the mysterious. And I think ultimately how each of our practice unfolds is karmically eccentric. You know, what you might get caught in might not be what the person next to you will get caught in ever, or it might be really light. And, but for you, it might be the deepest, darkest, hardest thing to work with. Uh, so it's very important. 
when we're comparing, it's like when we're on a retreat and we look around, usually we think everybody's doing, you know, better than us when we're having a hard time, right? We think it's, you know, they're all, they're all knowing what they're doing and they're having a good time and I'm failing or, you know, I'm the worst here. Um, and then when, and, you know, when we're doing well, we think we're the best. You know, it goes back and forth. But it takes a great understanding to realize that suffering is universal and freedom is universal. And on a deep level, this purity and purification and learning that we're learning how to have no part left out to include every experience as part of, part of enlightenment. Uh, this is universal for all of us. And very uniting. It makes us all uh, interconnected. So if we don't let life or the universe or people or beings, sounds, moments touch us, then we don't have to feel vulnerable or uncertain or feel joy, the joy of connection and the vulnerability of change. If we don't live through the coming and going of life, we don't have to feel the longing and the aversion. So we're learning how to let purity, purification, life, birth, death, come and go by itself. And we're learning to love ourselves when we're holding on and when we're pushing away. We learn to love ourselves when we're afraid and when we're lost or impatient or when somebody tells us we need an anger management course. And lo and behold, we'll have these moments of mystery and relief and unexpected joy where we get a sense of freedom and we can let knee pain, a bird song, loving-kindness, fear, thought, emotion, whatever it is, just to come and go, no part left out. And we feel this deep commitment to freedom and know we can keep going through everything. Let's sit for a minute. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.